Decision podcasts by the New York Prosecutors Training Institute are made possible by VoicePods. Convert your text to voice at voicepods.com. Read this decision at NIPT Law. www.nypti.org slash law. People v. Tapia, decided on April 2, 2019. Defiore, Chief Judge. The issue presented in this appeal is whether a portion of a testifying witness's prior grand jury testimony was properly admitted as a past recollection recorded to supplement his trial testimony. We hold that the trial court did not abuse its discretion in admitting the grand jury testimony as a past recollection recorded as there was a proper foundation for receipt of the evidence. We further hold that, since the declarant of that out-of-court statement was a live witness at trial, Defendant's Sixth Amendment right to confrontation was not violated. 1. At trial, Sergeant Charlie Bellow testified that, on November 2, 2008, he was driving Lt. James Cosgrove back to the police precinct at about 3.30 a.m. when he saw defendant body slam the victim in the street outside a bar and drag him between two parked cars. The officers exited their vehicle and, while Cosgrove pulled defendant off the victim, Bello stopped another man who was running toward the altercation. Bello testified that, after Cosgrove separated the victim from defendant, he noticed the victim was bleeding profusely from his face and neck. Defendant and the other man were arrested. Bello observed a shattered beer bottle on the ground where the victim had been assaulted, but did not collect the pieces of glass as evidence. The victim sustained multiple injuries consistent with being cut by a dangerous instrument. He testified at trial that he was attacked from behind, punched and kicked, and only realized he was bleeding just before the police intervened. The victim identified defendant as one of his assailants. The physician who treated the victim at the emergency room testified that the five lacerations to the victim's face and neck were consistent with being struck with a sharp cutting instrument, such as a piece of glass. The physician explained that the victim's neck lacerations were potentially life-threatening because of their proximity to the carotid artery and the vena cava. During the people's case, defense counsel timely notified the court and the people that she would be seeking a missing witness charge if Lt. Cosgrove was not called as a witness. In response, the people produced Cosgrove, who had retired from the police department. Because Cosgrove could not independently recall the incident, the people, outside the ken of the jury, sought to have his prior grand jury testimony admitted as a past recollection recorded. Defense counsel objected, asserting that Cosgrove could not be cross-examined due to his claim lack of memory and that admitting the grand jury testimony would therefore violate defendant's Sixth Amendment right to confrontation. Counsel also contended that the grand jury testimony was inadmissible under CPL 670.10 which governs the use of prior testimony of a witness. Unable to attend trial. The people indicated that, although the witness was available, if the missing witness charge was denied, Cosgrove would not take the stand. Defense counsel declined to withdraw her request for a missing witness charge, inconsistently asserting that Cosgrove was available for purposes of the latter charge but, due to his memory loss, was unavailable for confrontation purposes. The court found that the witness was available for confrontation as, H.E. is literally subject to cross-examination by being on the witness stand under oath and passed to, 
the defendant, as a witness for cross-examination. The trial court held that, if the people established the appropriate evidentiary foundation, the prior grand jury testimony would be admissible as a past recollection recorded, because Cosgrove was in attendance and subject to cross-examination. The people called Cosgrove to the stand, who testified that on November 2, 2008 he had been working an 11 p.m. to 7.45 a.m. shift, in uniform, with his partner, Officer Bellow. Based on his review of police paperwork, Cosgrove was also able to testify that he assisted in arresting two individuals at the scene, but could not independently recall the circumstances leading to defendant's arrest. The people then sought to introduce Cosgrove's grand jury testimony as a past recollection recorded. Cosgrove testified that he appeared before the grand jury just days after the offense, that the event was fresh in his mind at that time that he testified truthfully and accurately before the grand jury and that his review of the stenographic transcript of his prior testimony did not refresh his present recollection of the events. Finding the appropriate evidentiary foundation established, the court allowed a portion of Cosgrove's testimony to be read into the record. Cosgrove's grand jury testimony, which was consistent with Bellow's trial testimony, was brief and not particularly detailed. The testimony added the fact that Cosgrove saw defendant kick the victim in the head. The court immediately gave the jury the limiting instruction that a memorandum of a past recollection is not of itself independent evidence of the facts contained therein. It is auxiliary to the testimony of the witness. On cross-examination, defense counsel questioned Cosgrove about several routine matters including his partnership with Officer Bellow and the circumstances surrounding his grand jury testimony. Cosgrove testified that he had been to the area of the assault, which was located close to the police precinct, on various occasions to intervene in bar fights. Cosgrove readily admitted that he did not recall the details of those particular altercations, explaining that he did midnights for most of his career and a fight outside of a bar, did not, really stick out in his mind because he responded to a lot of them. Defense counsel focused on the witness's lack of present recollection but also elicited that Cosgrove's grand jury testimony that he had been a passenger in a parked police department vehicle was probably supposed to read marked police vehicle. In addition, Cosgrove admitted that he did not review a copy of the grand jury minutes other than in preparation for trial and that, based on his lack of independent recollection, he could not swear that the official court reporter's transcription of his testimony, although certified, was accurate. The following day, after the close of evidence, defendant moved to strike Cosgrove's grand jury testimony, asserting that the officer's inability to independently verify the accuracy of the stenographer's transcription removed the foundation for its admissibility as a past recollection recorded. In response to the people's argument that the motion was untimely, the court initially observed that it could still give a curative instruction but, ultimately held that defendant's argument was untimely and thereby is waived. The court went on to reject the argument on the merits. Three counts of the indictment were submitted in the alternative to the jury under a theory of acting in concert, assault in the first degree, attempted assault in the first degree and assault in the second degree. In its final charge, the court expounded upon how the jury should consider Cosgrove's grand jury testimony as a past recollection recorded. In addition to a second instruction that the evidence of past recollection recorded was auxiliary to the witness's trial testimony and not independent evidence of the facts, the jury was further instructed that, 
You may consider the witness had knowledge at the time the testimony was taken of the events he testified to and whether he saw the reported testimony at or near the time the testimony was taken and recognized it at the time as containing a true statement of facts within his own knowledge. You may consider the witness's testimony on this issue in deciding what weight to give the statements contained in the former testimony. You are at liberty to accept as much as you think accurate and disregard the rest or accept or disregard it in its entirety. The jury acquitted defendant of assault in the first degree, but convicted him of attempted assault in the first degree. The appellate division affirmed, holding that it was a proper exercise of discretion for the trial court to admit Lt. Cosgrove's grand jury testimony as a past recollection recorded. The court held that the people laid a proper foundation for the admission of the testimony and that there was no violation of the Confrontation Clause because Cosgrove testified at trial and was subject to cross-examination. The court also held that the evidence was legally sufficient to support the conviction. Two justices dissented in part and would have reduced defendant's conviction to attempted second-degree assault, on the ground that the evidence was not legally sufficient because it did not establish beyond a reasonable doubt that defendant, alone or acting in concert, cut the victim with a dangerous instrument. One of the dissenting justices granted defendant leave to appeal and we now affirm. 2. At Trial when a witness testifies in the presence of defendant and before the trier of fact, the evidentiary doctrine of past recollection recorded allows a memorandum made of a fact known or an event observed in the past of which the witness lacks sufficient present recollection, to be received in evidence as a supplement to the witness's oral testimony, People v. Taylor. The foundational requirements for the admissibility of a past recollection recorded are, 1. The witness must have observed the matter recorded, 2. The recollection must have been fairly fresh at the time when it was recorded. 3. The witness must currently be able to testify that the record is a correct representation of his or her knowledge and recollection at the time it was made. And 4. The witness must lack sufficient present recollection of the information recorded. When such a memorandum is admitted, it is not independent evidence of the facts contained therein, but is supplementary to the testimony of the witness. The witness testimony and the writing's contents are to be taken together and treated in combination as if the witness had testified to the contents of the writing based on present knowledge. The admissibility of such evidence is committed to the sound discretion of the trial court in determining whether the appropriate foundational requirements have been met. Here, the court did not abuse its discretion in finding that the foundational requirements were met and that Cosgrove's grand jury testimony was admissible as a past recollection recorded. On direct examination, Cosgrove stated that he had previously testified truthfully and accurately before the grand jury to an event he had observed when that event was still fresh in his mind, and that reading the official minutes of the prior testimony did not refresh his present recollection. The correct representation of the record was provided by the court stenographer's certification of the grand jury testimony. Defendant's argument that there was an improper foundation is based on an alleged typographical error in the minutes in Cosgrove's testimony that he did not review the transcript of his grand jury testimony near the time it was recorded to verify its accuracy. This argument is without merit. Determinatively, the transcript of the grand jury minutes was certified by the court reporter as a true and accurate record of the testimony. The trial court reasonably concluded that the officer's representation that his testimony was truthful and accurate when made, together with the official court stenographer's certification, were sufficient, 
particularly here, where the discrepancy identified was a trivial typographical error that defendant fully explored on cross-examination, see Generally People v. Baytoon. 3. Notwithstanding the core fact that Cosgrove was a testifying witness at the trial and thus not an unavailable witness, defendant and the dissent maintained that the use of Cosgrove's grand jury testimony as a past recollection recorded violated CPL 670.10 in the Confrontation Clause. These arguments disregard the plain text of CPL 670.10, particularly the phrase unable to attend as well as the significance of defendant's cross-examination of a live, testifying witness before the trier of fact, and are without merit. CPL 670.10 sets forth three specific types of former testimony to be admitted into evidence when the declarant is subsequently proven unable to attend trial for certain reasons. The admissible categories of prior testimony adhere to the constitutional right to confrontation by providing the defendant with the opportunity to cross-examine the declarant, testimony that was given at a trial on the accusatory instrument, at a preliminary hearing on the felony complaint, or at a conditional examination under CPL Article 660, CCPL 670.10. The declarant is unavailable at trial within the meaning of the statute when the witness is unable to attend. By reason of death, illness or incapacity, or cannot with due diligence be found, or is outside the state or in federal custody and cannot with due diligence be brought before the court, CPL 670.10, emphasis added. CPL 670.20 sets forth the procedure for moving the prior testimony of an absent declarant into evidence and requires the trial court to conduct a hearing to determine whether personal attendance of the witness is precluded by some factor specified in CPL 670.10. As we have held, CPL 670.10 reflecting the spirit of the underlying constitutional prescriptions demands a showing that the witness cannot without due diligence be found, People v. Arroyo. The unavailability of the witness under 670.10 must be established to satisfy the court that the prosecutor's failure to produce the witness was not due to a strategic preference for presenting the testimony in the more sheltered form of minutes rather than in the confrontational setting of a personal appearance on the stand. The statute's three carefully worded and enumerated exceptions to the use of prior testimony of an unavailable declarant are essentially exclusive, people viola, internal quotation marks and citation omitted, but we have recognized certain exceptions predicated on either the forfeiture or inapplicability of the defendant's right to confrontation of the declarant. In the case of a defendant's forfeiture of the right to confrontation, a witness's grand jury testimony may be admissible as direct evidence where the witness is unavailable to testify at trial and the proof establishes that the witness's unavailability was procured by misconduct on the part of the defendant, People v. Girachi. In the case where the right to confrontation is not a factor because the defendant is the proponent of the evidence, a defendant's due process right to present witnesses in his own defense required that he be permitted to use grand jury testimony from an unavailable witness. See People v. Robinson. In the absence of defendant's forfeiture of the right of confrontation, there is no real dispute that CPL 670.10 does not allow the people's use of grand jury testimony of an unavailable witness, as defined therein, 
for the simple reason that there was no cross-examination in the prior proceeding. In this regard, defendants and the dissent's reliance on People v. Green, for the proposition that CPL 670.10 is essentially a categorical exclusion of grand jury testimony of a live witness at trial is mistaken. In Green, we held that it was error to allow the people to admit a non-testifying witness's prior grand jury testimony at trial as evidence-in-chief because that testimony did not fall within the classes of prior testimony rendered admissible in criminal proceedings by CPL 670.10. In that murder case, after jury selection had begun, the prosecutor informed the court that the 11-year-old witness was indicating an unwillingness to testify and that his critical testimony would not be forthcoming at the trial, see Appellant's Appendix at 11 and People v. Green. After interviewing the child in the robing room and confirming that the child professed to have no recollection of the incident or of testifying at the grand jury, the court issued a written decision ruling that the child's grand jury testimony would nonetheless be admissible at trial. The people, who were unable to demonstrate that the defendant had played any part in causing the witness's reticence, opted not to proceed to a Sirwa hearing, see matter of Holtzman v. Helen Brand, People v. Smart. During the trial, the witness was again examined in the robing room, not before the trier of fact, and reiterated that he had no recollection of the incident, of ever having testified before the grand jury, or even of his prior robing room conversation with the court. The child was not sworn and refused to respond to the court's attempt to establish his testimonial capacity, CCPL 60.20. The court adhered to its prior decision, allowing the grand jury testimony into evidence as an exception to the hearsay rule. Defense counsel was then permitted to inquire of the witness as to whether he recalled speaking with defense investigators, which the child denied. The witness was never called to the stand by either party, even to explain the extent of his lack of recollection, despite the witness's physical availability to testify before the fact finder. Nonetheless, the people were erroneously permitted to introduce the non-testifying witness's prior grand jury testimony as evidence-in-chief despite the failure to lay any foundation that the out-of-court statement was admissible either under CPL 670.10 or as a past recollection recorded. In stark contrast, here Cosgrove took the stand before the trier of fact, without objection by defendant, as a people's witness and was cross-examined by defendant. Those factors are not immaterial and indeed render the very purpose of CPL 670.10 inapplicable to this case. To be sure, the people did not seek to introduce the testifying witness's grand jury testimony under that statute. Rather, as noted above and unlike the circumstances presented in Green, the people laid an adequate foundation for admission of the testimony as a past recollection recorded via Cosgrove's live testimony that he appeared before the grand jury just days after the offense, that the event was fresh in his mind at that time, that he testified truthfully and accurately before the grand jury, and that his review of his grand jury testimony did not refresh his present recollection. Equally unavailing is defendant's Sixth Amendment argument that, even though Cosgrove testified at trial, his memory failure rendered him unavailable for the purpose of cross-examination within the meaning of the Sixth Amendment. Significantly, the right to confrontation guarantees not only the right to cross-examine all witnesses, but also the ability to literally confront the witness who is providing testimony against the accused in a face-to-face -face encounter before the trier of fact, 
Sequoia v. Iowa, California v. Green. The confrontation clause is satisfied when these requirements are fulfilled, even if the witness's memory is faulty. The United States Supreme Court has directly addressed the situation where a witness was unable to explain the basis for a prior out-of-court identification due to memory loss, see United States v. Owens, see also CPL 60.25. In Owens, the court held that, Teehee Confrontation Clause guarantees only an opportunity for effective cross-examination, not cross-examination that is effective in whatever way, and to whatever extent, the defense might wish quotation marks and citations omitted. To that end, IT is efficient that the defendant has the opportunity to bring out such matters as the witness bias, his lack of care and attentiveness, his poor eyesight, and even, what is often a prime objective of cross-examination. The very fact that he has a bad memory, see also Delaware v. Finsterer, an expert witness who cannot recall the basis for his opinion invites the jury to find that his opinion is as unreliable as his memory. Teehee Clause's ultimate goal is to ensure reliability of evidence, but it is a procedural rather than a substantive guarantee. It commands, not that evidence be reliable, but that reliability be assessed in a particular manner, by testing in the crucible of cross-examination, Crawford v. Washington. Although Crawford changed the landscape of the analysis of what constitutes testimonial evidence within the meaning of the Confrontation Clause, the Supreme Court clearly maintained the fundamental importance of a witness's presence at trial. W. Hand the declarant appears for cross-examination at trial, the Confrontation Clause places no constraints at all on the use of his prior testimonial statements. The clause does not bar admission of a statement so long as the declarant is present at trial to defend or explain it. Therefore, Cosgrove's presence at trial as a testifying witness, where he was subjected to cross-examination before the trier of fact who must assess the credence and weight to be accorded to his testimony as a whole, precludes defendant's confrontation clause argument. 4. Finally, the evidence was legally sufficient to support the conviction. Viewing the facts in a light most favorable to the people, there is a valid line of reasoning and permissible inferences from which a rational jury could have found the elements of the crime proved beyond a reasonable doubt, People v. Danielson, internal quotation marks and citations omitted. Accordingly, the order of the appellate division should be affirmed. Order affirmed. Opinion by Chief Judge DeFiore. Judges Stein, Garcia and Feynman concur. Judge Wilson dissents in an opinion in which Judges Rivera and Folly concur. Decision podcasts by the New York Prosecutors Training Institute are made possible by Voice Pods. Convert your text to voice at voicepods.com. Read this decision at NIPT Law. www.nypti.org slash law.